And please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3, our text is verses 1 through 15. We're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, as most of you know, and we've entitled the whole book, the whole series, Life That Cannot Be Grasped. Life under the sun, life apart from God that cannot be grasped for ultimate satisfaction. That's the theme of this book, according to Solomon. So please follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so that people fear before Him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. I've entitled this message, He Makes All Things Beautiful in Its Time. It's from verse 11. That is really the theme of these 15 verses. He makes all things beautiful in its time, in its particular fixed time. We often can fear things that we can't control. If I can control it, everything will be okay. You take my hands off the wheel, I'm subject to how other people act and respond and what they do, and that's scary. We fear what we cannot control. Kids leaving home, scary proposition. Investments, scary proposition. Elections, what people think of us, what will happen to our bodies as they grow older, what will happen inside of them that I can't control. We often fear because we don't have control. We try to gain hope and overcome our fears by doing what? Grabbing control whenever we can. That's what we often try to do. But according to this passage, God is in control, and the things that He is doing for His children, for those who fear Him, 
are beautiful, or in another word, good. They're good. We try to gain hope by controlling situations. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15 will teach us that for Christians who know the goodness of God, actually our lack of control can bring us hope. The fact that everything is not in our hands should bring the Christian hope. Because then whose hands are they in? God's hands. And is God for His children? Yes. Therefore, a lack of control can bring hope for the believer. This section here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, can really be a study of providence, how God orders everything under the sun, how God orders things rightly. There's a Puritan in England named John Flavel, and some things you should know about his life. He was once kicked out of his church in the great ejection of gospel-preaching pastors and, and church members, kicked out of their churches in 1662. He experienced that, no longer had a pulpit, no longer had a place for his congregation to meet, forced out. He was once burned in effigy in the town where he had previously ministered, people burning a likeness of him, showing their disdain for him. He had four wives, three of whom he lost to death. He experienced not only persecution, but also sadness because of death. He lost multiple children to death. And yet, one of John Flavel's most famous works is a book called The Mystery of Providence. God orders everything rightly, and we don't always understand what He's doing. Flavel said this in that book, Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident that it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do if you, had le- if you were left to your own option. It is better for God to providentially order all things in your life than for you to control them yourself. It's better. John referred to Romans chapter 11 at the beginning of our service. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been His counselor? Nobody. Our God is wise. He knows all things. He has designed all things for His glory, and get this, for His children's good. It is better that He orders our life than we order our life. And that's what's taught here in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. God's purposes rule over all seasons of our life. The easy ones and the hard ones, the happy ones and the sad ones. God's purposes rule over all the seasons of our life. We don't know those purposes of His, but they'll be revealed in eternity future. But for now, we can trust that every single one of them is good. Now, I didn't say feels good. I said every single one of them is good according to His providence and His plan. So for our outline this morning, we'll see a threefold pattern for rightly thinking through the ever-changing seasons of life. Things come, things go. Things change, there are seasons, and here in this passage, Solomon gives us a threefold pattern for rightly thinking through the ever-changing seasons of life. Now, the first one isn't really a commendation for you to embrace, it's just something that kind of happens as we observe the seasons of life, as we feel the seasons of life. The first point is this, the initial frustration. And what is the initial frustration? Where's the gain? Where's the good that comes from this season? This has happened to me. 
And initially, I'm frustrated by it. Where's the good? Where's the gain? Where's the profit? How is this situation good for me? And we see that in Solomon's response in verse 9. But before that, he writes this poem about life, doesn't he? A famous poem, a poem that's been turned into song. He writes this poem about the ebbs and flows of life, the changing seasons of life. And then in verse 9, again, he asks the question, what gain has the worker from all his toil? What is the gain of all of this? So let's go through his poem and then see his immediate frustration in verse 9. Where's the gain? For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Everything There's a season for everything under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die. And that kind of hovers as as the umbrella over the rest of the poem. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Now, underneath all that, in between the birth and the death, there are these things. And it's written, again, in poetic fashion because that's sometimes what life does. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. There's intentionality there. And notice that some of the things in this poem are evil. Some are morally bad. Some are morally good. Time to kill is morally evil. A time to heal is morally good. There are some things in this poem that are happy. Some things that are sad. There's there's happy laughter. There's sorrowful weeping. Some things have no moral feature about them at all. They're just things that happen. A time to tear and a time to sew. There's no moral good or bad in either either of those. Just sometimes things are torn, sometimes things are sewn. So this, I appreciate all three of these aspects. Some things are moral, some things are, are easy, hard, some things just kind of are neutral, but they're different. That's what life is like. Verse 2, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what's planted. So a time to put something in the ground, hope for the future, and a time to then take out that plant. We go through seasons. A time to kill and a time to heal. There are times in life and in places and locations where killing is prominent. Killing happens. And there are times where healing happens. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. And sometimes these seasons happen rather quickly, right? I was just weeping over this situation that happened and almost overnight now there's joy and laughter for some reason. And we don't always know. We can't always orchestrate when the laughter comes in. God is in control of all that. Have you ever planned something that you thought was going to go really, really well? Oh, this is going to be awesome. And then it happens, and afterwards a friend or someone says, hey, how'd that go? Oh, it was horrible. We're not in control of the seasons. We're not in control of our lives. Or the opposite's true. Oh, this is going to be a mess. This is going to be horrible. And then someone asks later, hey, how'd that thing go? It was fantastic. It's as if there's someone in control other than us. God's in control. Verse 3 continues, Uh, Or verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. We cast away stones, we get rid of stones maybe to build on a piece of land, 
Sometimes we gather stones together, maybe to build monuments, things like that. So all things happen in life. We cast away stones, we gather stones. A time to embrace, embrace loved ones, a hug, a kiss, and a time to refrain from embracing. Maybe someone moved cross-country, moved to the other side of the world, or perhaps died. There's a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose. Car keys, anybody? A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Cleaning out the garage. We're keeping this, we're casting it away. A time to tear and a time to sew. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is life under the sun. We experience all of these, it seems. And sometimes from day to day. Sometimes these seasons are years long, and then they abruptly come to an end. Everyone's life is a bit different. But we experience the ebbs and flows of these things. So Solomon asks at the end of all this, hey, this is what happens to everyone. People experience these things. I've experienced them. You've experienced them. And then he asks the question. His immediate frustration is, where's the gain in it? Where's the profit? This is just kind of the cycle of life. What happens? How is this good for me? How does this ultimately benefit me? How does this give me final satisfaction? When it says in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil, some of you were prompted to think of chapter 1. We talked about this. This was the question he asked at the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So as we work at life, as we work at living in this world, what does it finally give us at the end? And there's a frustration here in Solomon's mind. Where is the gain? How is this good? We often respond to changes in life in this way. There's laughter and joy, and then we get a phone call in the middle of the laughter as everyone's laughing around us and we pick up the phone, we hear some news, and immediately the laughter's gone, the morning co- comes. We share people with, the, with people in the room who are laughing what the phone call's about, and all of a sudden the laughter stops and now it's a season of mourning. These things happen. And so our initial response is, Lord, how is this good? How, how can we go from la- or laughter to mourning and it be good? What's the gain here for us? And there's an initial frustration sometimes when God brings a season of difficulty into our life. Where is the gain? But Solomon shows us a second response in verses 10 to 11. The careful reflection. What is the careful reflection? Solomon's going to reflect now. And what's the careful reflection? It's that God has beautiful intentions for every season. This is what Solomon concludes. Initially frustrated, oh my goodness, this, this li- it just goes in cycles, this life. There's nothing to finally profit from it. I can't be ultimately satisfied by it. I've tried everything, pleasure, wisdom. I've tried it all. Where's the gain? And now it's as if Solomon sits back. We talked about Solomon's backyard and kind of looking out over all the gardens and everything. Now he sits on the rocking chair in his backyard and he says, hold on. He's rocking back and forth and he's thinking. 
and the thought of God and His goodness comes into Solomon's mind. There's a careful reflection now in verses 10 to 11 from Solomon, and it's that God has beautiful intentions for every season. Verse 10, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So Solomon's sitting down, initially frustrated, but now he takes a seat, grabs a lemonade, sits back, and starts thinking, you know what? God's made this life frustrating, but I know some things about God. One, He's made all of this beautiful, good, appropriate in its time. Now, some people in a first reading of this tend to think that it means something difficult will one day be beautiful in God's providence. That's not what it's saying. It's saying right now, the difficult thing in its time, right here, is good. Now again, it doesn't feel that way, does it? But when God is in control and He loves His children, that thing that He puts in their place is currently good. We might not know that right now, we might not feel that right now, but in His plan, it's good for us. That's what it's saying. Everything is beautiful in its time, the time that He's given it. That's what this means. It's beautiful because it currently, right now, in its time, has a purpose. This word good, it doesn't mean as much as it should to us. I mean, God is good, chocolate cake is good. Both true. One, in one, the word good means so much more than the other one. So, so when God created the earth and He looked out at the different aspects of creation, He called them good. And maybe Solomon's referring us back to that. When God initially started this whole thing, those flowers, good according to God. The moon, the stars, good according to God. Solomon here is saying the difficulties of life, the things that he puts in our place, the things that are easy and hard, the things that satisfy and give us joy and the things that don't, that that kind of steal joy from us, those things also are good because of the purposes of God. That's what Solomon's saying. Verse 10, or verse 11 continues, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What's that saying? It's saying that we see things in this season right now, and every person, whether they're in Christ or not, they know there's something more There's something beyond this. Somehow this makes sense later. Now, they might not tell you they believe that. They might be a fatalist. No, 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 no. This doesn't mean anything. It's just bad. But it is in the heart of man to know there's something beyond this. And God's put that in our heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But we don't know how this situation right now is redeemed in the future, makes, makes, makes sense in being good for us. We don't know that. That's in God's hands. So God has ordered things in our lives at different times, and those things in their place are good according to the, the purposes of God. We don't know what that will mean in the future. We don't know how all these dots are going to be connected, 
We don't know any of that, but we do know that there's something that's going to happen, some sense that's going to be made, and that's in God's hands, not in ours. That's what Solomon's saying. So sitting back, reflecting on the poetry of life, he's initially frustrated, but then he says, hold on a second. I know that God's got His purposes, and I know that there's something about the future where this will all make sense, and this is all in the hand of God, not in my hand. Now, all parents know this. All parents, in a sense, represent God in this action. We know things that could happen in the future for our kids. We make decisions for them based on a future bigger picture. They're thinking about today. Candy. I want candy. Didn't you have candy earlier today? I want more candy. And then later on at night, can I have dessert? Just sweet, sweet, sweet. That's what the kid wants. And the parent is thinking about the bigger picture, right? Not just about this moment where you want that lollipop. The parent's job is to think of the bigger picture. Kid wants candy, parents thinking about cavities. Kid wants candy, parents thinking about dental bills, things like that. It's a good parent to make decisions about the current situation based on what the future holds. It's a good parent. God's the same way. We want candy from life. We don't want thorns, vegetables, sickness. We don't want any of that. But God, our Heavenly Father, knows what's best. He's guiding us, knows what's best for us in the future, for the future. He knows how this thing ultimately will make us stronger, produce more hope, bring us more mature character for the future. God knows what He's doing with our lives. He's our good Heavenly Father. He knows. So if you were to talk to a kid, hey, trust your parents. Trust that there's a certain sovereignty they hold. There's a certain control they have over your diet, and it's best for you to to submit to, to what they're doing, the decisions they're making. And don't just trust in their control over you, trust in their goodness. They're making the decisions from a good heart for you. The same can be said for us when it comes to trusting God with the seasons of our life. Trust in His control. His right hand governs all the situations in your life. Whether you got that job or didn't get that job, He's in control. Trust His sovereignty. Trust His control over your life. But don't just trust His control. Trust His goodness. Why didn't I not get that job? Because God is good. Why did I get this job? Because God is good. He knows what's best for His children. Trust in His sovereignty. Trust in His goodness. We see sovereignty and goodness just in verse 11, don't we? He made everything, sovereignty, beautiful, good, in its time, sovereignty. Trust in His sovereignty. Trust in His goodness. Some of you may get a diagnosis from a doctor, may get the answer to test results that, that you've had, tests that you've had. You might get some results in the next month or so that are discouraging, that are negative in your mind. Another person in this church might get test results that are good and positive. 
why do each of his children get different results? He's good. He knows what he's doing with this person. He knows what he's doing with that person. He's in control of their lives, and he's good to both of them. He cares for both of them. He knows what he's doing. He's sovereign. He's good. Just think about the cross. Think about the disciples of Jesus as Jesus is arrested and as they kind of follow maybe from behind later and see him hanging on the cross. I wondered if the disciples ask themselves, how is this good? God and Father, we thought that this was your son. We thought this was the victor. We attached our wagons to him. We attached our lives to him. How is this good? There can be an initial frustration, an initial concern with what God has ordained. How is this good? Where's the prophet? There's a screaming man on a cross, Jesus Christ. There's a weeping mother at his feet. There are friends, some who are there, some who have fled. How is this good? Well, the cross isn't just beautiful now. The cross was beautiful then too. In the purposes of God, it was beautiful then whether the people around it recognized it or not. All things beautiful in its time. That dying man would be raised by God and rewarded by God, exalted by God, Jesus Christ. Those friends and followers and mothers in the cross, because of the cross, were saved by his death. The sin that they had levied against God and the punishment for it was taken care of by Jesus on that cross. The cross was good. That's why we sing songs like, when I survey the wondrous cross or the power of the cross. We know now later on that cross is good. We, we boast in the cross, says Paul in Galatians 6. We boast in it. But it's not just good now. It was good then. They just didn't realize it then. Right? It was good that that was happening. God knew what He was doing. Same is true with everything in our lives today. Again, it doesn't always feel good, but it is good because God's in control and he's good for his children. John read from Romans earlier. Listen to this. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we know that to be true theologically. Amen, that's true. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then tomorrow we get that diagnosis. Romans 8.31 is still true. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We've got a reward coming. If he sent his son to die for us, he's not just going to stop caring for us. There's a future, there's a hope. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, now, this is probably written to people who have experienced some persecution. There are people levying accusations against them. 
bringing a charge against them. And this is saying, who's going to bring a charge against you? Jesus Christ Himself pleads for you, prays for you. There's no charge that can be brought. You're His elect. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Again, the things that happen in the seasons of life. As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life is difficult sometimes for the believer. Knowing all these things, all these seasons of life, all these happenings of life, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can put in that list, in that poetic list that Paul gives in Romans 8, you can put your health, your kids, your grandkids, your job situation. You can put all of those things under there. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're His. He's sovereign over it all, and He's good to His children. You find this in the Old Testament. You find it in the New. God is in control even of the hard things. This led Charles Bridges to say, it may be a dark time, but I know it's a wise time. That's a good thing to say about our difficult circumstances. It may be a dark time, but I know it's a wise time. I know God's working. I know He's doing something. I don't know what yet. Eternity's put in my heart. I know there's something and it'll make sense of it all, but I trust that it's a dark time, but it's also a wise time. So Solomon goes from the initial frustration, where's the gain, then to the careful reflection, God has beautiful intentions for every season, and then we learn about the proper application. Now here's what Solomon wants for his readers. Here's how we then live. Here's what we do. Enjoy his gifts and fear him. Enjoy his gifts and fear him. You see that in verses 12 to 15. Enjoy his gifts. Verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So again, follow Solomon's thinking through the passage. He gives this poem about life, and then in verse 9, he says, where's the gain, where's the profit from all of that? And then he sits back, and notice verse 10, it starts with, I have seen. He's kind of pondering life. he's, He's seen. There's some conclusions he's made. I've observed something. Namely, God's made everything beautiful in its time, and he's got a plan for the future. He knows what he's doing. And then... We come to our point right here, verses 12 to 15, and verse 12 in the ESV says, I perceived. It's different than I've seen in verse 10. I've seen is kind of, you know, I've kind of, I'm kind of, I've observed something. Verse 12 is stronger than that. I perceived. The Legacy Standard Bible, I think, says it best. 
I know. So in point two, Solomon's, you know what? I've observed something. God's made everything beautiful in its time. And here in verse 12, I know there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. He's come to some conclusions here. And again, you'll see that in verse 14. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. I know. He's made some initial observations. God's good. He's ordered everything in His time. And now He's saying, I know. I know. He knows how to live now. He knows how we should live. And here in verses 12 to 13, enjoy His gifts and do good. Because He's made everything beautiful in His time, because there's a future that He's in control of, not us, enjoy the gifts He's given you and do good. I don't know what movie it was, but I remember watching a movie where it was one of those end-of-the-world movies. You know, it's gonna, the world's going to end because of, I don't even remember what the catastrophe was, but the world was going to end, and the people in this house all knew it, and they knew that it was going to end at a certain time, and they were eating a final meal together, and it was somber and sad that shouldn't be the way that we eat our meals. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there are difficult seasons. But at the end of the day, there is hope. We know what's coming. We know God is coming to do justice, to, to punish all wrongs, and we know that He's going to come and bring us that final gracious glorification. He's going to save us finally, bring us home. We know what's coming when the day of the Lord comes. So therefore, we can eat and drink and enjoy life. We can, we can experience the things that He's given us as gifts, enjoying them, knowing that the future's in control and the future's His, and everything is going to literally work out in the end. We know that already. So Solomon says that should lead you to a certain joy in this life. So you see how it's important to think with a future hope and future perspective through the trials of life. It's important to do that. Now, notice in verse 12 it says, I perceived or I know that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Solomon doesn't just want you to say, okay, I get it. This season is difficult. This season is hard, but it's good for some reason it's going to make sense in the future, so okay, I'll just keep going through it. No, 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 that's a good start, but then it says to be joyful and to do good, to do righteousness, to do right. So it's not just that we endure difficult seasons, but we're called to do the right thing in those difficult seasons. So some of you maybe are, are struggling in your marriage or struggling because of work situations or whatever it may be, you don't just say, okay, I know this is good for some reason. I get it. God's in control. He loves me. Sovereign. He's good. Oh, I'll just endure it. No, no, no. Don't miss out those little words there. And to do good as long as they live. What's the right and good thing to do in the situation? I don't know if this work situation will work out. I'll just trust the Lord. But what is there to do in the situation? Work hard. Be faithful. 
I don't know where this marriage is going. This is difficult. It's, I don't understand it, but I get it. I trust God. It's beautiful. It's, it's here for a reason, this situation. I know it'll make sense in the end, but don't stop there. Husband, how can you be more like Christ, like Ephesians 5 tells you to? Wife, how can you follow what the Lord has for you in marriage based on what His Word says? What's the good for you to do? So trust and obey, right? Be joyful, do good. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. God's gift to us is that in a world of changing seasons, some of them difficult, hard, in a world of changing seasons, we can still find joy. We can still find happiness. Now, you're going to think this illustration's off the wall, okay? But I'm going to talk to you about shaving, right? Where in the world is this coming from? I get it. Okay. Shaving. Life is hard. I've got to shave and clean myself up. I mean, if I just, if you just let your face go, guys, just, it just, who knows where it goes, right? It's just chaos, Shaving is part of the curse. I've got to control this thing, all right? My friend wrote an article about this. That's where I get it from, okay? But sometimes when you go to a store, maybe you're walking through the mall, um, not the Prescott Mall, there aren't many stores there, but you're walking through some other mall, <laughs> and, and you come to a shaving store, and it's clean, and you walk in, and it smells good. I mean, there's there's sandalwood, and there's lavender, and, oh, and so you, you, go, you go, and they kind of give you a demonstration. They say, you know, put this on your face. Well, wow, it smells good. What is that? It's God's gift. In seasons of difficulty and difficult tasks to do, sometimes there's lavender in it. <laughs> it sounds dumb, but even in the difficulties, there's good gifts. God told Adam, you've been working for food, and it's been fine, but now there's a curse. And as you work and seek to obtain some of the crops, there will be thorns and thistles. It's going to be harder. But even in that, God gives human ingenuity to make that work a little bit easier. God's gracious gifts to man, even under the curse. Some of you pull weeds and you get stickers and everything. You can literally go to True Value Hardware and buy gloves, no more stickers. Again, it seems dumb, but those are little evidences God is continuing to gift us with things. He helps us. He cares for us. Cars are dangerous. Cars are difficult. People invent seatbelts. A little example of protection and safety. The ultimate example of being in the hands of God who protects and keeps safe. So, notice the gifts around you that God has given. You can take joy in things, whether it's shaving or gloves when you're pulling weeds. There are gifts all around us that God has given. We live in a difficult life, but there are gifts to be found from the hand of God. So, enjoy His good gifts and do good. And then verses 14 to 15, Solomon knows something else. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. Here's what that's saying. God's got a plan. You're in the season right now. 
You can't tell God, hey, I want to add this to it. No, no, no. He's already got a plan. Lord, in this season, I want to take this away from this situation. Nope. That's going to be left right there. No one can add to it. No one can take away from it. God's got a plan. And God's not ordered around by us as we want to change his plans. God's got a plan. Solomon knows whatever God does endures forever. There's a plan here going on into the future. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it. Why? Why Why does God want us to know that He's in control? Our times are in His hand. Why does He want that? So that we would fear before Him. Now again, some of you hear fear and you immediately think, that's an unpleasant thing. I don't like that. God wants me to know He's sovereign, so I'm scared of Him. No, no, no. That's not the fear He's talking about. So if you will, let me for a moment talk to you about this fear of the Lord from the Scriptures. There's, there's a resource in your worship guide, a, a, a blog post on the fear of the Lord, the right fear of the Lord. I'd encourage you to read that sometime this week. Because this is, it's important for us to know this meaning because this is what God wants us to do. Here's how He wants us to respond to His sovereignty and control that we fear before Him. There are different kinds of fear. There's a fear that wants to avoid things, that sees things as bad. Think of a soldier being shot at. There's a fear there, and it's not an appealing fear. But there's also a kind of fear and trembling and weightiness, if you will, when you're a groom standing there and your bride's going to come down the aisle. There's a certain awe, heaviness, nervousness, joy, all bound into one. That's the fear this is talking about. It's a joyful, trembling, weighty, good experience. That's what he talks about. In Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah prays to the Lord that the people would fear his name out of delight. Okay, so, so the fear of the Lord isn't something that repels us, keeps us from God, makes us run from God. John Bunyan used to talk about the temptation that the devil puts into our mind where he, he wants us to fear God with the bad fear. Am I really his child? What's he doing? I've sinned. He won't accept me. I've sinned way too many times. He won't accept me anymore. And John Bunyan said, see the devil's paw in that thinking. He's actively trying to get you to think that way. He's trying to make you scared of God so that you stay away from him. But the true fear of the Lord is a trembling, awestruck joy. How can he be that good toward me? That astonishes me. And that fear draws you to him. That awe, that trembling draws you to him. That's the fear of the Lord spoken about in Scripture when it talks about his people fearing the Lord. And that's what God wants. He wants us to see his sovereignty over everything. He wants us to see that he's in control of everything and that he's good so that we would 
go to him in trust. Go to him in joy, knowing that I have a home with you, the awesome, powerful, and good God. That's God's desire here, that we would see him in control and we'd have a true awe and trembling and joy and satisfaction which moves us to him. That's what's being talked about here. I'll even give you one more example of this that's so profound. Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy (coughs) about the coming Messiah. So this is going to be true of Jesus, okay? Now listen to how the fear of the Lord is used. Isaiah 11, 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Is God the Son afraid of God the Father? Like in the negative sense of that fear, in the, in the moving away from God the Father? No, he's not. And his delight, verse 3, shall be in the fear of the Lord. There's a certain joy about this fear. There's a certain trembling, joyful anticipation, joyful wanting, joyful desire, joyful moving toward that God the Son had toward God the Father. That's what this is talking about. It's not a fear that moves you away from something because there's danger. It's a certain trembling that moves you toward it. You want it. Such a trivial example, I know, but I think it encapsulates this. Remember, remember Beatlemania, some of you? Some of you just know that from history books. Beatlemania, where, where the Beatles would walk by like 300 yards away and girls would just like tremble and faint and pass out. That's a good example of this. There was a fear, a weightiness, a trembling, but they didn't want to be away. They wanted to be near them. That's the idea. There's a certain overcoming I want to be near you, in your presence, with you. That's what God wants from his people when they see his sovereign control and his good control over their lives. I want to be near you. I want to, be, I want to talk to you more. I want to listen to you more. I want to sing to you more. I want to be near you. I tremble at who you are and who you are for me. That's the goal here. And so Solomon's trying to give us application here. Enjoy the gifts he's given you and go to be near him and in awestruck worship and reverence. Trust that He's your refuge, your strong tower. He's your Father. So friends, enjoy God's gifts. Do good. Fear Him. As we wrap up, did you notice something about the three points? Did you notice that it started with how we feel? (laughs) Where's the good? I don't like this. And then it went to what we start thinking about. Hold on a second. God has beautiful intentions for every season. And then it went to, now what do I do about that based on what I know? Now what do I do? That's a good pattern for us to to go through life with. What do I feel? Not pleasant? I don't like it. Hold on a second. What do I know about God? And now, now what I know about God, how do I respond? It's a good pattern for us as we go through the seasons of life. Now last year, we walked through the Heidelberg Catechism together. and We would take a Sunday and read a new Lord's Day section. I want to do that again. 
I think it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, is it? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, we're just going to read through the Heidelberg again. And this is on the providence of God. And I think this encapsulates what is being taught in, Ephes- or in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So I'll read the question, and then together we'll read the answer that's up on the screen. Hopefully you can all see it, maybe behind me. Okay. Question. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Do you see in that control and care fatherly hand? I hope so. Next question. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? Where's the benefit? Where's the gain for us? Answer. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. Let's pray together. Sovereign God, good Father, thank You for the plan that You have for each of our lives. Thank you for making us your children so that all elements of that plan, ultimately, we know, are good for us. And no governments, no devil, nobody can thwart your plan for us. Thank you that you're good. Behind your plans is always a loving heart for us. Always. Always. Even today. Father, thank you for your control, thank you for your power, and thank you for your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.